Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Happy Wednesday. Hello, happy Wednesday. This oh, is I'm our sorry. Last... I, didn't, I didn't start it with hi, Angel. I'm so sorry. I didn't start it with um, hello, Howdy. my love. <laughs> the love and light of my life. <laughs> Apology uh, considered, but not accepted. Okay. <laughs> so I, I normally we do two, obviously, on Wednesday. People have picked up on that by now since this is our last week. But um, I wanted to take it over because I found a story that I was very passionate about horrifying and it's my version of long so i might as well just take it over right (laughs) yeah why not so today i'm covering the story of john list okay it's a name that i've heard forever but for some reason just never read anything about him i just i don't know what it was the name was so boring i thought the crime would be boring i've heard the name but i i think it's just like a, a common name in true crime so i'm i don't know if i'm familiar with it yeah probably So, on December 7th, 1971, authorities entered the List family mansion. The stunning New Jersey home had 19 rooms, grand marble fireplaces, and a ballroom. It was a place that was so beautiful it almost seemed untouchable. Yeah, that sounds very fancy. It's just very grand. And, like, I guess they had a skylight that was like a Tiffany skylight. Like, everything was over the top and, like, very luxurious. You mean chandelier or sky? It was a skylight. So, I don't know if it was, like, the glass or something was made from crystal. They didn't elaborate on it, but it was just described as a skylight from Tiffany's. Well, that's... Okay, so fancy is an understatement. I didn't even know they made those. So, you know, it's... it's, They're rich, rich. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Neighbors had been noticing for an entire month that the lights shined through the windows at all hours without ever turning off, like kind of in the way that like when you're going out of town and you turn the lights on so burglars don't come in Mm -hmm. and it was going on for a month, but they hadn't heard anything from the neighbors going anywhere. So they were a little bit suspicious. One of the neighbors, Dr. Bill Kunick, noticed that while Christmas lights were being hung from every home, the lights inside the list home were burning out. The List daughter's acting coach was concerned about her absence and decided to show up at her front door one night. As soon as Dr. Kunick and his wife saw the strange car pull up to the house at 10 p.m., they decided to see what was going on. They hadn't seen their neighbors in a month, and this was the first sign of life over there. They called the cops and collectively expressed their concern for the List family. The neighbor told them that John's mother, Alma, lived in the home and it was possible that she needed assistance and like the cops didn't need to hear anything else they knew it was like a wellness check so when they arrived they entered the home through an unlocked window and the drama coach followed behind them oh no i thought that was really weird everyone that was on the scene that had called the cops eventually entered the home oh yeah okay (laughs) they regret that later the first thing they noticed was the chilling organ music echoing from the intercom system. Ew. I, <laughs> I know. And it was like kind of, it was like, I heard from some sources it was loud, some sources it was faint. Either way, really creepy. The house was frigid. It was December on the East Coast and the air had been turned all the way down. There was a faint foul smell. As the police made their way from room to room, they stopped dead in their tracks at the entrance to the ballroom. One of the officers pointed his flashlight towards the peculiar shape across the room. Laid out on four separate sleeping bags were John Liss' wife and three children. They were covered in blood with their faces covered. John's mother was found dead on the floor upstairs. 
a note from John Liss was found confessing to everything and it was addressed to their pastor. The thermostat had been turned down, which slowed down the decomposition, but didn't prevent the distinct smell of death from filling the home. It was clear that they had all been dead for a while. A month prior, John methodically killed each and every one of his family members, one by one. His wife, Helen, was first. The kids went off to school like they did every morning, and John shot her in the kitchen while she sipped on her morning cup of coffee. As his wife lay dead on the floor, John walked upstairs to the third floor, where his 84-year-old mother slept. When she asked him what that loud sound just was, he told her it was nothing and kissed her. Then he shot her in the face. She collapsed the floor, and he simply shut the door as she bled to death inside of her bedroom. John didn't want the kids to see their dead mother on the floor and know it was coming for them, so he began to clean up. He dragged his wife's body into the ballroom and then laid her on top of a sleeping bag before he meticulously mopped up the blood. John stated later that he had to mop up the floor three or four times and wring out the bloody water with his own hands each time. Then he made himself a sandwich. He sat and ate his meal in the same room where he had just shot his wife. When he was later asked how he could possibly have an appetite, he chuckled and said, I was hungry. That's just the way it was. The kids wouldn't be done with school for a few more hours, so he went to the bank and cashed the last of his mother's savings bonds. In his memoir, he said that this was due to his army training. It was important to take care of yourself in the midst of stress. His plan required a lot of energy and planning, and he had to compartmentalize and satiate his hunger and run his errands. This dude wrote a memoir? Yeah, he wrote a memoir later on after being arrested. (laughs) And he also, I mean, he, and we'll talk about it more throughout the story, but he wrote a five-page confession to his pastor because he figured that his pastor would understand. And so there's a lot of this that has come directly from him. Yeah. John had stopped the mail and the milk delivery. He called school officials to let them know that the kids would be gone on a family vacation He notified the newspaper delivery man. He went to the bank. And all of this is like the most Virgo thing that a human can do. And so I looked it up and lo and behold, born on September 17th, making him a Virgo. Oh my gosh. The day after my birthday. Not to lump you in with this guy, but you know, he's meticulous. But I also, I can see it. Yep. That day, his 16 year old daughter, Patty, signed herself out of school the way that she often did. She claimed to be suffering from period cramps, but in reality, she just liked skipping school a lot. Okay, gotcha. Yep. (laughs) She had more fun things to do. Yeah. Patty walked to Duke's sub shop downtown and chatted with her friend that worked there until around 1230. Someone let her know that her dad was waiting outside to pick her up, so she said her goodbyes and got into the car. John and Patty went into the house together, and as they walked from the laundry room to the kitchen, he raised his gun and shot her once in the left side of her face. She died instantly. John dragged her lifeless body and placed her on a sleeping bag next to her mother. That day, 13-year-old Fred List was working at his after-school job at KMV Associates. Patty actually worked at the same place with him, and when she didn't show up for a shift, he was confused. He called up his dad and asked him why she wasn't there. Within minutes, his dad pulled up to the front of the building, and Fred got into the car. Fred and John walk in through the back door of the house, And once again, as they walk into the kitchen, John shoots his youngest son the left side of his face. John dragged his body to the ballroom and placed him on his own sleeping bag. Then he cleaned up the scene before John Jr. got home. 
John Jr. barely had time to place his gym bag on the laundry room counter when his father shot him. John Jr. fought back and struggled heavily. John became furious and shot him 10 times. He later said, I don't know whether it was only because he was still jerking that I wanted to make sure that he didn't suffer or that it was a sort of way of relieving tension after having completed what I felt was my assignment for the day. Everything, it takes your breath away. It, like when you hear the way that he talks and recalls the murders in the moment and then also, you know, decades later, it, yeah. it like knocks the air out of you. John Jr.'s body was dragged to the ballroom and placed on a sleeping bag with the rest of his family. Because he was the last to be killed, John didn't bother cleaning up the bloody drag marks. And one day, John List annihilated his entire family. According to his memoir, he wasn't feeling distraught. He wasn't riddled with guilt. He felt, in quotes, something like the empty feeling you get after sex. Ugh. John List was an incredibly religious man. He was a devout Lutheran, taught Sunday school, and attended church every Sunday. It's always these It's always these dudes. Mm -mm. After murdering his family, he recited the Lord's Prayer and then wrote a letter to his pastor. He believed that his pastor would understand why he did what he did. John had just lost his job at a bank that year and had difficulty finding another. His family had grown accustomed to living a lavish lifestyle, and his pride didn't allow him to cut back. In fact, he didn't even tell his wife that he had lost his job. Every day, he drove to the train station and read the newspaper. I hate these dudes. It reminded me of Harold Henthorne. Yeah, it's just hanging out at Panera. <laughs> Literally. He wanted to keep up the illusion that he was still riding the train to work every morning. But instead, he sat there reading and he stole money from his mother's bank accounts to pay their mortgage. Without any money coming in and a hefty mortgage payment, they were approaching a foreclosure. Being poor was a sin to him and he refused to go on welfare. According to allthatsinteresting.com, in quotes, it would entail excruciating embarrassment in the community and violate the principles of self-sufficiency that he learned at his father's knee. He believed that killing his family would save them from embarrassment and the suffering of being poor. John said later in an interview, I grew up with the idea that you should provide for your family and to do that, you have to be successful in the job that you have or you're a failure and that was not a good thing to be. He feared if he simply left, his wife and children would stop going to church and this would ruin their chances of going to heaven one day. He wrote, at least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally there were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is, it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. He says that as if he's just done some noble thing. Like something heroic to save their souls and like send them to heaven. Because if they were in charge of their lives, they wouldn't get to go to heaven. Like he <laughs> it's not even them. It's not even in charge of their lives. But like if they're poor, then they won't go to church. It's, which makes no sense. Well, it was also, he was also really concerned. He wrote in that same letter that his daughter, Patty, dreamed of being an actress. And this really concerned him because he thought that it would get in the way of her continuing to be a Christian. Okay. He signed off with, P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic third floor. She was too heavy to move. That's just how he signs off the entire letter. She was too heavy. 
He had stated that he only killed his mother because the deaths of the children and Helen would be a tremendous shock to her. I'm sure it would have been. Yeah, it would have been. After writing his letter, he called up one of his best friends, Rick Bader. He asked to speak to Rick's mother, who wasn't there because she was at church choir practice. John told him to tell his mother not to pick up his children the following day because they'd be in the Carolinas visiting their sick grandmother. Before ending the call, he tells Rick that he'll give him a call when they're headed home from their trip, because as of right now, it's open-ended. John makes himself dinner and then goes up to his bedroom. He knew that he would have to leave early in the morning to get his head start, so he made sure to get a good night's sleep. Of course he did. So he's literally sleeping on the floor above where his children and wife lay dead on sleeping bags. Mm -hmm. The next morning, John collected every photo of himself inside of the house so that no images could be used for wanted posters. Oh, because the only ones that exist of him are in his home? <laughs> well, you'll come to find that, yes. Oh <laughs> there was, there, yeah, this guy was thorough. This guy is so thorough. It was like he anticipated this moment for his whole life almost. It was like he had to be, and we'll talk about it more later, but he had to be in control of everything, the way that he was portrayed, the way that he lived his life and people lived their lives around him. I see. So he leaves his New Jersey home for the last time, and dropped his car off at the JFK International Airport as a false lead. John List would not be seen again for 18 years. How did the dude manage that? <sighs> You'll learn. Oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Listen t- up, girl. <laughs> and that's the story. <laughs> John List was born on September 17, 1925, to John and Alma List in Bay City, Michigan. He was a shy kid, but he was a gentleman with good manners. He didn't participate in sports or school clubs, but he focused his energy on academics and he did very well. After high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He got a degree in business administration and a master's in accounting from the University of Michigan. When John was stationed in Virginia, he met the woman that would become his wife. Helen had been previously married to a soldier that was killed in the Korean War. Helen and John were polar opposites. John didn't like to make his presence known, while Helen was warm and the life of the party. There was only a brief engagement before their wedding in December of 1951. It's rumored that the couple got married so quickly because Helen got preg, got preg, because she got pregnant, because she got preg. Oh my god, (laughs) pregnant is what I meant to say. But soon after the wedding, Helen supposedly lost the baby. But it's unclear whether or not she actually lost a baby or if she had faked a pregnancy to hurry the marriage along. And that's what sources are kind of leaning towards. Hmm. Christian virgins also rush to get married if they are abstaining before Well, marriage. they had both been, or she had been married before. So oh, I guess that's yeah. true. But maybe he was a virgin because he is such a goody two-shoes Christian boy. That's very true. And that was, I, I mean, like the rushed engagement and everything was so un, like unheard of for him because he was so calculated. Sure, yeah. They went on to have three children together. They fell in love with a 19-room mansion, also known as Breeze Knoll, and moved to one of the most desirable neighborhoods in Westfield. From the outside, they looked like the picture-perfect family. So my question is, did anyone see this coming? Yeah. Dr. Bill Cunnick, one of the people that had been there the night that the bodies were discovered, recalled one conversation that he had had with John List. About a month before, so basically right before he murdered his family, John told Bill that they had been having financial issues but in no way led on to anything violent. Like that was the extent of the conversation. I'm having problems. I'm having a hard time paying the mortgage. 
that was a lot to his neighbor because he never revealed anything personal about himself at any point before. Yeah. A friend of Patty's said that she told her once that she was scared of her father and she was scared that he was going to kill she and her brothers. Whoa. And at first Patty's friend didn't take that seriously, but over time she started getting really worried. She thought about telling her parents, but stopped herself because she wasn't allowed to hang out with Patty. Apparently Patty was a little bit of a wild child, like a free spirit. And she did, you know, the things that a lot of people her age were doing and parents weren't okay with that. Sure. Other than that one statement, everyone had the same feeling. They never saw this coming. John List was the type of man that appeared stoic and calm while his life was unraveling. He was a cold and dull man, someone that people didn't really enjoy being around. John seemed strict, but not like a murderer. He mowed his lawn and did yard work in a suit. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Which kind of reminded me of my dad who like goes to the beach and is like white button downs and slacks like back in the day or like walk the dogs in like a dress shirt. So it's like, okay, I can see how like, you know, a lot of people, especially back then wanted to keep up with appearances of like, you know, out of like respect and stuff like that. But this guy, I think it was just a control freak. Yeah. He threw rocks at kids or animals that entered his yard. Oh. Apparently, like one of the neighbors, I was listening to this one podcast, and uh, one of the neighbor boys recalled that they had had a pet donkey, and the pet donkey was like their pride and joy. They were obsessed with her. And one day she just like wandered off, like she had gotten loose from her rope and wandered into the yard, and they ran over when they saw that John was throwing rocks at her. Oh. And like in, to, in his head, he was like, I saw it coming just based off of that. Oh. I mean, yeah. Who who hurts an animal like that? Serial killers. That's very true. His son, John Jr., would sit and watch the neighborhood kids play from a distance, always from the porch, and everyone assumed that this was because he wasn't allowed to get dirty. The neighborhood kids recalled his two sons being nerdy and socially awkward, like they had been sheltered from everything. Their older sister was different, though. She was confident and bold and very well-liked. In 1989, 18 years after the murders... New Jersey prosecutors came up with a genius plan. They contacted Frank Bender, an incredible forensic artist. If a skull was found, Frank could literally create a mold of what that person would have looked like or probably looked like then or now. Oh, that's I don't know how you could do that. Like down to like the scoop of the nose or like brow shape. He was just absolutely incredible. He could make molds of what a person probably looked like decades after they were last seen. So he was often used for like kidnapping cases. Yeah. So Frank Bender took a look at one of the only photos that he could find of John List, and he began to sculpt. And I'm going to show you the picture of this. Obviously, he made it into a bust, but this is like the Whoa. natural progression of like a chin and everything like that. The, wow. the, the, the natural sagging of a chin. Wow. So that's how accurate it was. So at this time, America's Most Wanted was the show to watch. The host, John Walsh, was very intrigued by this story. He heard that a man had brutally murdered his wife, mother, and three kids, vanished into thin air, and then hasn't been seen in 18 years. And he was like, yep, I'm all over this. This (laughs) sounds impossible. Let's do this. On May 21st, 1989, the episode on John List aired and 22 million people watched in horror. The bust that Frank Bender created was shown as a general reference to what John List might look like today. Of course, with that much exposure, people start talking and the tips were flooding in. One of the calls came from a woman that loved all things true crime and gossip. 
<laughs> she's the person that buys the magazines like National Enquirer at the grocery store. <laughs> she saves them all and then she keeps them stacked on her coffee table. Oh my gosh. So people who do that can actually be helpful? I had no idea. And like people that like went into her home to interview her after, she had stacks on her coffee table. She had stacks in her closet. She was like somewhat of a, a gossip magazine hoarder. Uh-huh. Wanda Flannery is her name. Okay, Wanda. Wanda. And she called from Richmond, Virginia. And she said that that bust looked oddly similar to her next door neighbor, Robert Clark. Robert was married to a woman named Dolores. He was a church going man and an accountant. Oddly enough, this wasn't the first time that Wanda suspected that Robert Clark was John List. That doesn't surprise me. Mm-mm. She had seen a tabloid while she was waiting in line at the supermarket. And this was years earlier. When she read the story on John List in the Weekly World News, she was convinced that she knew him. She even showed the story to John's wife, Dolores. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she like sped over to the house, showed it to her. But Dolores totally dismissed the claims and said there was no way that this was her husband. And there she is, years later, watching America's Most Wanted with her daughter and son-in-law. 20 minutes after the episode, they called and gave authorities Robert Clark's address. After 18 years, authorities discovered that John had moved to Colorado and changed his identity to Robert Clark. He had gotten an accounting job and joined the local church. After some time had passed, he moved to Richmond, Virginia with a woman that he had met in church. John had told Dolores that he had been married before, but that his wife had died of cancer. They always say that. They always say that. Or like she cheated on me and left me just to make them the victim. Yeah. Only nine days after America's Most Wanted was aired, John List was arrested on June 1st, 1989. This man that called himself Robert Clark maintained that he was in fact Robert and not who they said he was. When he went to trial in 1990, his defense lawyers claimed that John had suffered from PTSD after serving in Korea. And on top of that, he was going through a midlife crisis. That was what his defense attorney said. I was like, I thought assholes going through a midlife crisis, hook up with a girl half their age and then buy a flashy sports car, like not, not kill their entire family. Yeah. A psychiatrist named Dr. Steve Seamring examined John after his arrest and diagnosed him with compulsive personality, which is not to be mistaken with obsessive compulsive disorder. Those who suffer from compulsive personality have an overwhelming need for order, control, and perfection. Dr. Seamring also noted that John showed in quotes, no evidence of anything that approached genuine remorse. He is a cold, cold man. John List was found guilty and given five life sentences. He died in prison at the age of 82. Six years before his death, he did an interview with Connie Chung. Many people that have heard about the murders wondered why he didn't kill himself afterwards. John said that he felt that killing himself would prevent him from getting to heaven <laughs> okay, so murdering your whole family mm-hmm. will allow you to get to heaven, but then yep. taking your own life won't. As if you needed one more reason to just like aggressively hate him. Yeah. He said that all he hoped for was to be reunited with his children, mother, and wife once again in the afterlife. When John recalled how he felt while committing the murders, he said he knew that this was a sin, but in quotes, it's just like D-Day. You go in, there's no stopping after you start. And that is the story of the horrific murders of Alma, Helen, Patricia, Fred, and John Jr. List. And um, fun, not fun fact, but fact, um, John List, just because he was kind of like considered like the boogeyman, you know, he like no one knew his identity. No one had a photo of him. And then he just like disappears. He was literally no one 
from their life had it i believe they had that one him. photo and that's what they used the bust from oh that's okay. it no one had a photo i mean i guess when you're born in the 1920s like maybe it's just not like today and if you do it's like where is that photo it's not like you can sure. find something on google images sure but he was considered on the fbi like most wanted list um he as a possibility for uh being that one man db cooper the hijacker the hijacker the guy yeah. that hijacks a plane then jumped out and then mm -hmm. was never seen ever yeah. again mm -hmm. so i thought that was really interesting and it was like not until after obviously this that he was taken off the possible suspect list of being db cooper that's very interesting yeah yeah and he only had two thousand dollars when he um left the new jersey home because he had cashed in the last of his mother's like security were to savings bonds so she had only had two thousand dollars left to her name and he took it and he needed more money so the fbi figured maybe it's db cooper and you want to know it's like especially infuriating on top of everything that i just told you there's more there's more the Tiffany skylight that he basically laid all of his family members out underneath. Mm -hmm. If he had just sold that, he could have gotten out of debt. Oh yeah, I'm sure it was worth so much money. I'm not sure exactly the exact amount. Yeah, I want it. Should we Google it? But it, why not? Okay, so I just looked up how much a Tiffany window would be, and in today's market, it would be anywhere from twenty five thousand to one hundred fifty thousand for a window. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that Tiffany. Be like doing these things no i thought it yeah. was jewelry and like sometimes like a spoon like a car like a business card holder yeah like or like a tea like, kettle or yeah. something like that yeah i guess they do windows and they can range from 25 to 150k so if yeah if he had just sold that i'm sure he could have taken care of his mortgage for quite some time and it was a skylight that went over the ballroom so mm -hmm. that's got to be just it has to be massive. large i don't know the dimensions so big well i I mean, a ballroom. But the ballroom <laughs> was like very ornate and very grand. And they didn't deck. I also, when I was listening to this one podcast, Father Wants Is Dead, um, they were saying how it was like very sparsely decorated, the whole house, just because they, they wanted this big statement piece, the yeah, mansion, yeah. but they couldn't afford to furnish it. Yeah. And all of the kids would just play soccer in the ballroom because there was nothing in it. Yeah. It was just this light in this massive empty room. Someone said that it was approximately the size of like three basketball courts, I believe. Damn. So it's a big ballroom. Yeah. And can Man. you imagine just like seeing that? Like, oh my God, I think about being the authorities with the music playing, mm -mm. ice cold. He turned the thermostat all the way down and then walking past this massive room that's scary on its own. Yeah. And then you just see this mass in the middle of the floor. It would just, oh. So I'm just curious about, obviously every aspect of this whole thing was planned to a T, mm -hmm. every aspect. There's no denying that. Yep. But what was the point of the music? So he said that he put on the lights and the music to deter any robbers from coming. He didn't want any burglars to come in yeah. and I, in my opinion, it's more like assume or see that there's people there. Yeah. <laughs> that there had been dead bodies and seen the blood and things yeah. like that. I think he wanted to show that there was like still life there, but without like taking into account that neighbors can see you coming and going and sure. driving and things like that. Yeah. So it was mostly just like a deterrent. It's so wild that he wrote a memoir. Oh, yeah. Who buys it? <laughs> yeah. So they actually, I, I read somewhere that New Jersey um, passed a law that people that commit these kinds of murders or yeah. these kinds of crimes can't um, profit off of anything that they sell in relation to their yeah. crime. Oh, the balls on this dude. He's such a piece of shit. He is such a piece of shit. And everyone that knew him just thought he was so meek. Yeah. And dull. Like that was like the word that was used to describe him through and through was just dull. 
but <laughs> at least he's in heaven. I know, seriously, <laughs> a good you Lutheran boy. It's so upsetting. Well, I don't want to be critical, but that was definitely not a full length episode. <laughs> well, you only get one today, people, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh my God, I thought it was going to be long. Why am I like this? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I've been your friend for years and I still don't know. I don't know. I know know me for 30 is, years and I don't know. It's very cute how every time that you're like, oh, this is a, I got to take up all Wednesday. Sorry, sorry, but it takes so long. It's so sweet as I'm watching the time as you're, you're going. Like, oh, I'm like, girl. oh, this is like on the shorter end. <laughs> this is literally like shorter than your other episodes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I hope my apology um, holds some weight. I'm so sorry. Well, you told it so well. Thanks, so, girl. I think I think people will forgive and be happy about it. I hope so. All right. Well, I love everyone listening, and I love you, Ashley. And I love you. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katharina.